Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. And I'm Erica. And Erica, it is officially June, which means it is National Indigenous History Month. And it started out with a bang, didn't it? I mean, it's also Pride Month, but uh, yeah, and it's really unfortunate that we are starting this month out with uh, our slate of topics that we have today. Well, (laughs) I mean, it's not getting any better. (laughs) I mean... It really is a part of our heritage. Our home on native land. Mm, mm, mm. So uh, we're back after uh, a few weeks off for, you know, mental health and and shit. Yeah, we we get tired and stuff. And, you know, pandemic and like shit happens and you just can't do it. But uh, hopefully we're going to be here for the next several weeks before we take a little well-deserved summer break. Yep. Uh, at least that's the plan. <laughs> um, but just a couple quick reminders. One, uh, make sure to share the podcast, subscribe, give us ratings on Apple Podcasts, um, retweet our tweets, uh, follow us on Instagram. That's where we are. And like us on Facebook. That's where we're really active sharing um, news articles, jokes, um, everything under the sun, really. TikTok videos, all sorts of things. <laughs> loving the memes. Loving yeah. the memes. Um, and follow us on Twitter. Of course. It's our favorite platform. Um, so, yeah. Uh, June, National Indigenous History Month. Um, in case, for those of you who weren't aware, the University of Alberta offers a free course that explores Indigenous history and current issues in Canada from an Indigenous perspective. Uh, there is a link to that course in the show notes. So if that is something that interests you, um, check it out. Uh, a couple of friends of mine have done it and have very positive things to say. And also um, there is the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. If you are looking to make any sort of donations to uh, the survivors of the residential school atrocities, um, I will probably be doing that right after we finish recording this, Erica. So Do that it. link, that link also in the show notes. So we are obviously very uh, conflicted about you know kicking off um, Indigenous History Month with this story, um, but of course, most people are aware that. The remains of 215 children were found last week at the former Kamloops Residential School in Kamloops, BC. Some of the remains and the children were as young as three years old. And to our knowledge, these missing children are undocumented deaths. The Kamloops Indian Residential School was in operation from 1890 to 1969, when the federal government took over administration from the Catholic Church to operate it as a residence for a day school until closing it in 1978. It is estimated more than 150,000 children attended residential schools in Canada from the 1830s until the last school closed in 1996, which is really not that long ago. Clinton. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was uh, a preteen. Um, estimates place the death toll at about 6,000 children who died in the schools, but it is said that the true total is likely much higher as many children died at home as children were permitted to return home if they were critically ill, thereby putting entire remote indigenous communities at risk. Um, seems kind of like the uh, Andrew Cuomo math counting. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said large numbers of indigenous children who were forcibly sent to residential schools never returned home. The executive summary for, uh, in the National Center for the Truth and Reconcilia Reconciliation Report says that Canada's resident residential school system for Aboriginal children was an educational system in name only for much of its, of its existence. These residential schools were created for the purpose of separating Aboriginal children from their families in order to minimize and weaken family ties and cultural linkages and to indoctrinate children into a new culture a culture of the legally dominant Euro-Christian Canadian society, which was, of course, led by Canada's first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. Burn it all down. <laughs> the schools were in existence for well over 100 years, and many successive generations of children from the same communities and families endured the experience of them. The central goals of Canada's Aboriginal policy were to eliminate Aboriginal governments, ignore Aboriginal rights, terminate the treaties and through a process of assimilation, cause Aboriginal peoples to cease to exist as distinct social, legal, cultural, religious, and racial entities in Canada. The establishment and operation of residential schools were a central element of this policy, which can best be described as cultural genocide. Oof. I'm just thinking back to all of those um, can establishment pundits who in 2019 when the missing and the, the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls report came out and labeled Canada as committing cultural genocide continuing cultural genocide against indigenous people and all those people were like how dare they say this Canada is a great country how dare they say that Canada committed cultural genocide committed genocide they committed fucking genocide okay and these remains are basically the sort of thing you would see in like you know internment camps mm -hmm. and um and you know uh um bury uh, like shallow graves mm -hmm. in mass atrocities the holocaust for example um genocides everywhere like how can you look at a shallow grave of bodies maybe it's not that shallow it doesn't matter but and not have that word genocide embedded into how you describe the policies of this country yeah i mean genocide is indigenous people genocide is literally defined as the mass killing of members of a of a target group and the biological genocide is the destruction of a group's reproductive capacity and thereby cultural genocide is a destruction of these structures and practices that allow a group to continue to exist as a group and that's basically what happened 
And Erica, like you say, um, you know, uh, Chief Roxanne Casimir of the uh, Kamloops First Nation said that in a preliminary survey using ground penetrating radar found evidence of 215 graves. And, um, you know, this is something that is barely seen in North America, much less in any part of the developed world. And it's very reminiscent of um, what happened during World War II. Yeah, completely. There's, you know, just because you, you, you had it over, you know, a century, or you've developed this, this system, this systemization of that genocide, and you've done it so well enough that you've, you've literally built it into the structure of how you treat Indigenous people going forward. It's a friggin' genocide. At the end of the day, like, I'm thinking of, so as reading this and putting this together, all I kept thinking of was sterilization policies, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, the 60s scoop. It was that um, in the residential school system, uh, children, young girls were, had forcibly had IUDs inserted into them. Right. Children. Children. So... I, I, I'm not sure, just because you like your genocide with Brian Chablis does not make it less genocidal. Like, I, I'm not, but that's Canada in a nutshell. It's Canada's fancy like, genocide. It's fancy, it's fancy. You know, Canada's like, you know, we don't like what Ulysses S. Grant is doing it so publicly. You know what I mean? <laughs> like this mass murdering of, 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 of Native Americans. That's a little icky for us. So we'll just do it in a very <laughs> Canadian way. So here's a statistic for you. So if, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission determined that at least 3,200 children died while at a residential school, which means that is one in every 50 students during the entire program's existence, which is a death rate comparable to the number of Canadian prisoners of war who died in the custody of Nazis during the Second World War. Wow. Wow. So um, there's a there's a silent war going on, Aaron. Hmm. Funny. Weird. Hmm. Weird. Hmm. Um, so just a bit of history. Um, Canada asserted control over Indigenous lands. Uh, in some locations, Canada negotiated treaties with First Nations. In others, the land was simply occupied or seized. And so if you uh, are familiar with uh, these treaties, all of the numbered trees kind of um, in northern parts of BC and Alberta down into the prairies, they're all numbered. So you see a lot of like, oh, Treaty 6, Treaty 8 lands. Those are the ones that were negotiated. Any of the other treaties with different names or ones that generally followed later. Um, it, also, it also goes to um, what unceded and unsurrendered means, mm -hmm. territory means. Yeah. And it does, if you take it a step further, you have to question the legitimacy of Canada as a nation and the land that it's on. And given that we're in Ottawa and Ottawa is unceded, um, unsurrendered, is it Ashinaabe land, I want to say? Uh, I mean, it's 
the Algonquin people. The the Algonquin peoples. Um, Land, like that's what Ottawa sits on. Mm -hmm. So Ottawa sits on land that's not the crowns. Yeah. Think about that shit. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the whole negotiation of treaties is... It seems like it's an honorable and legal and proper process, but it generally this process was marked by fraud and coercion and Canada was and remained slow to implement a lot of these, the provisions and intents of the treaties that have actually been negotiated. Well, um, that's the problem with the Mi'kmaq in, in um, Nova Scotia. New, Br- New Brunswick or Nova Scotia? Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia. Yes, Nova Scotia. I mean... There were treaties upon treaties that identified this land as, as, as their land. And you know what, how they lost, quote unquote, control of that land is that white people just started moving in. Settlements. That's how. Oh, weird. Sounds uh, familiar. Sounds, uh, yeah, like something that was just recently in the news. Oh, OK. Weird, weird. And so, and so white people just started moving in and the, the, the governments of the time didn't enforce the treaties and that's liter- and so more and more indigenous people were just pushed off that land. That's mm-hmm. literally how Canada stole this country. I mean. Yeah, and, and the treaties, um, in addition to like allocating specific lands or reserve areas where people would live, um, it also kind of creates these quotas of of what they can do in terms of natural resources and um, food sources, right? And that's kind of the issue with the Mi'kmaq in Nova Scotia, is there, the fishing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then without legal authority or foundation, in the 1880s, Canada instituted a pass system that was intended to confine First Nations peoples to their reserves. Okay, this is my favorite factoid. May I? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so people, the history of this country is ugly. It's messy. It's the past system. So the past system was in effect for 60 years on reserves across Western Canada. So any First Nations person indigenous person who wanted to leave their community for any reason had to have a pass approved by the reserves Indian agent that would carry with them stipulating the leaves purpose and duration. The pass system came into effect after the Northwest rebellion in 1885. Now there's actually a documentary on this, a guy called Alex Williams, um, produce this documentary we'll put it up in the show notes it's free to watch watch it um and basically what he says is it was an illegal system that was put in place as a temporary quote security measure unquote that sounds familiar eh um after the events of 1885 that struck around for over that stuck around sorry for over 60 years um, that sounds very security measures and taking people's rights away due to, due to national security. Interesting. It's the carding of the 1880s. There you go. So 
what's what is also important about this past system is that in the 1940s inspired by what it read about Canada's Indian Act and its legal classification of quote status Indians the South African government examined Canada's Indian reserve system and later modeled elements of of it to create the apartheid South African state. Oh, our heritage. I need to get more wine. <laughs> I wasn't ready. Yeah. So basically, apartheid is a child of Canada. Well, yes, it is. It is. Um, Australia and the United States also had similar systems, by the way, but it's really the Canadian one that was so inspirational. Great. Um, yeah, the, the government also developed a policy called aggressive assimil- assimilation, which was to be taught at the church-run government-funded industrial schools, which were then called residential schools. Man, industrial schools makes them sound like trade schools. They really should have just gone with that. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the government at the time felt children were easier to mold into adult than the adults would be into, you know, this whiteness. And uh, the concept of boarding school is the best way to prepare them for life in mainstream society. Yeah. Um, residential schools were run under the Department of Indian Affairs, which, thank God, has changed its name since then. Um, attendance was mandatory for children in many communities that didn't have day schools. And agents were employed by the government to ensure that all Native children attended school. So in 1847, Edgerton Ryerson produced a study of um, Native education at the request of the Assistant Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. His findings became the model for future Indian residential schools. Ryerson recommended that domestic education and religious instruction was the best model for the population. Now, I saw, did you see Aaron O'Toole's tweet? Uh, oh, it, it's from like a couple months ago, right? Two days. Two days? Yeah. Why is this, I think this, this is also not like a new issue. No. It's similar. He's had similar problems because remember, Aaron O'Toole claimed that residential school architects only meant to, quote, provide education, unquote, to indigenous children, which we will get to what that education looks like a little bit later. But he quoted, he, he quote tweeted Perry Belgard, whose tweet was talking about how painful it was to hear that 215 bodies were for, were found at the former school, residential school, um, and went on from there. Aaron O'Toole quote tweeted it and said, this is a heartbreaking discovery. My thoughts are with the surviving families and communities today who are learning of this terrible news. And I'm just like, <laughs> dude. You tried to convince us that it wasn't a big deal. You tried to convince conservative students at Ryerson that it wasn't a big deal of all places. Okay. Have we, what, 
Is there any, any sort of discourse about the, uh, the name of Ryerson as a university? I think there is. Okay. It's starting. Great. Okay. I love to see it. Yes. So basically Canada separated children from their parents, sending them to residential schools. And this was not done to actually educate them, but to basically break their link to their culture and identity. Um, Maybe they just should have, you know, taught them how to read. Um, In justifying uh, the government's residential school policy, Canada's first prime minister, Sir John A. Macdonald, told the House of Commons in 1883, quote, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. He is surrounded by savages. And though he may learn to read and write his habits, and though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly pressed on myself as a head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thoughts of white men. Oh! I, I mean, reading that out loud made me so uncomfortable. Yeah. And people wonder why nobody wants to see Sir John A anywhere. Like there's certain people who have a right to say, hey, I don't want to go to Sir John A McDonald school. Actually, I, my junior high was Sir John A McDonald. Oh my God. Ew. Ew. Exactly. But I hope you're sending them a letter tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I'm like, I should. I hated that school. I think it was just cursed from the beginning for anybody who wasn't white. Anyway, mm-hmm. okay, Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs, Duncan Campbell Scott, whose name you should, you know, associate with everything white supremacy, outlined the goals of that policy in 1920 when he told a parliamentary committee that, quote, our object is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, unquote. So, uh, you know, this aggressive assimilation is cultural genocide. I think, I like, that's unequivocal. Um, the Canadian government pursued this policy of cultural genocide because it wished to divest itself of its legal, legal and financial obligations to Indigenous people and gain control over their land and resources. If every Indigenous person had been absorbed into the body politic, there would be no reserves, no treaties, and no Indigenous rights. Residential schooling quickly became a central element in the federal government's Indigenous policy. When Canada was created as a country in 1867, Canadian churches were already operating a small number of boarding schools for Indigenous people. As settlement moved westward in the 1870s, Roman Catholic and Protestant missionaries established missions at small boarding schools across the prairies in the north and in BC. Most of these schools received small per student grants from the federal government. So in 1883, the federal government moved to establish three large residential schools for Indigenous children in Western Canada. In the following years, the system grew dramatically. 
According to the Indian Affairs Annual Report for 1930, there were 80 residential schools in operation across the country. The Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement provided compensation to students who attended 139 residential schools and residences. The federal government has estimated that at least 150 First Nation, Métis, and Inuit students pass through the system. So I, I think that's basically the, the why in a nutshell. It's, um, it's a land grab. Yeah, it, I feel like it was almost a justification to get rid of the guilt. You know, like yeah. they felt like they're like, oh, well, you know, this land isn't ours. It's theirs, but we want it. So we should say that we're educating them and do all these things and make them more, quote unquote, cultured so that they can exist in a as in a respectable society. And look how good we are. We're paying for everything. Because you know that's what they're telling themselves. Yeah. You know. Like. I know. I know. Sorry. This is a heavy topic. I don't know what to tell you. Like, I, I don't know what to say. Except, you know, this is our very recent history. I just, I just really wonder, did they know what they were doing was wrong and this was like them trying to come to terms with their white guilt or did they actually think that they were doing them doing a good thing like i can't i can't tell it was a land grab i think that they wanted the land and they created whatever justification they could to assuage their guilt. Be, and guilt means that they know it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, they justified it in many different ways. And I'm sure there were many people who were like, this isn't right. Yeah, and they didn't want to just like outright kill everyone. Right. So if they quote unquote educated out of them. Exactly. So they wanted, they wanted, this is the way I see it. They wanted the land. They're like, okay, we can't really just like exterminate them. Like, Mm. you know, we don't want to be the United States, you know, we're better than that. Okay. Let's not pretend that these, these ideas were present back then. Mm -hmm. Of course I'm making assumptions, you know, um, so, but that's what Canada does. They're like, yeah, we don't want to be as, as flagrant about it. So we'll dress it up in, you know, you know, a nice Chanel pantsuit and we'll walk it down the runway. It fucking wishes. You know? Yeah, true. But I'm only using Chanel because she was a Nazi. But so- anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, mass graves and all that. Um, so, you know, but that's the way Canada functions. And, you know, we'll talk about that with our next topic, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that's exactly the argument that they're making in that. Mm -hmm. Totally. He's a shit piece. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so if you think that your church was not part of this, Mm. let me just tell you. Okay, listen, wrong. Okay. 
Roman Catholic, Anglican, United, Methodist, and Presbyterian churches were the major denominations involved in the administration of the residential school system. The government's partnership with the churches remained in place until 1969. And although most of the schools had closed by the 1980s, the last federally supported residential schools remained in operation until the late 90s. The last residential school was, was closed in 96, again, the Clinton years. So I just want to point out like really two good resources. One is a book called Stolen Lives. It's from this website called facinghistory.org. And Facing History is basically like their whole reason for being is to tell the history that isn't told in school, like to tell the full history. And there's also Indigenous Foundations at UBC. UBC has some really, really great resources on residential schools. And of course, there's always the Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, reports that you can read. They're broken down into like sub subtopics. So you can kind of take it in piece by piece. So. Um, Organized religion, man. Never, yes. never the good guy. No. Well, the whole doctrine of discovery um, with, you know, with the Pope and claiming land. So the doctrine of discovery basically said that any um, uh, Christian country under the Pope can claim land for I was going to say the crown it's not the crown it's for the papacy basically mm. and so it sort of gave um this carte blanche uh type of of justification for the violence and theft on a mass scale now many countries have repudiated the doctrine of discovery as being just completely complete bullshit Canada has not there is a vested interest in this country to keep indigenous people subjugated because of the land that we're on it's like literally that simple right um and uh it should come as no surprise to anyone that those who you know, went to these residential schools in addition to some of them paying the highest price, which is their lives. Um, there's also been, they've also suffered lifelong trauma, which has also been passed on to children and grandchildren, which is a phenomenon uh, psychologists call intergenerational trauma. And as soon as the children were taken from their parents and placed in the school, the school staff forbade them from speaking their Indigenous languages, uh, which is the first step of, in a journey leading to their assimilation. Uh, students at the schools had their hair cut short, um, they were dressed in uniforms, and they were often given numbers, and their days were strictly regimented by timetables. So basically, you know, um, First Nations and Indigenous communities, they traditionally enjoy, have longer hairstyles for uh, men and boys, uh, they dress, you know, very traditionally for specific ceremonies um, and wear like 
jewelry and, you know, definitely taking those away. Um, boys and girls were kept separate and even siblings rarely interacted, which, you know, has, um, weakens our familial ties. Yeah, um, this is Canada's child separation policy, basically. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Um, students at the residential schools did not receive the same education as a general population in the public school system. Oh, surprise. Um, and the schools were sorely underfunded. Mm, okay. Shocking. Weird. Um, as the system grew, so did... Uh, the fears that it was becoming too costly. What? Girl, yeah. what? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's going to be a lot of this, that reaction as you go on. As early as 1892, barely four years into the plan, um, the government switched to a new financial system in which the schools received a fixed allowance for every student they had which is basically a per capita grant. Uh, and there wasn't enough money to make repairs, to hire enough staff, to pay adequate salaries, or to even properly feed the students. And the immediate result was increased pressure to use student labor to provide goods, food, and services. Cool, prison, awesome. Um, moreover, once the per capita system was in place, schools fought to recruit as many students as they could to increase their grants. So schools were now competing with each other for new students, which is even as recent as the 1950s, often quote unquote stealing students from one another since the more students they had, the more money they received. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and you know who aided them in that? The RCMP. But we'll get to that. Ooh. Um, missionaries and re religious communities traveled the land to recruit children and try to convince parents to make their children go to the schools. The Indian Act also permitted the Indian agent or the constable to recruit and bring children to school voluntarily or not. These agents were given the authority to appoint truant officers in 1894 when the sections on the education uh, of Indian children were added to the Indian Act. In fact, anyone appointed a truant officer by the Indian Act as specified in the 1984 regulations was authorized to enter, quote, any place he has reason to believe there are Indian children between the ages of seven and 15 years, end quote, and to prescribe penalties for Indian parents who refuse to comply with the notice to make their children available for school. You know, in going through this, I was like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, I didn't know any of this. I, 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 I don't know what. I, I don't know what to. I, I, I'm, I'm speechless, and that's rare for me. Yeah, <laughs> and like I've seen on you know on like Facebook and Instagram, um, people saying that how all of the horrors of the residential schools we were never taught that yeah. growing up and and I think obviously part of that was because for like our generation and generations before us and even those who were like kind of born in the 90s um we couldn't learn it because it was still a thing 
right? Like how it's, it's so much harder to write a quote unquote history book when it's still actually taking place and how can you cr critique something that is still currently happening in the way that you do in kind of the education system. Um, and I, I hope that we can kind of get to like the 1619 project where we can start teaching these things as part of school curriculum. That's right. And like- There's a fight in Alberta about that right now, actually. And I, even if I think about like when I was in, in university, uh, I was, I took criminology and unless you took um, indigenous policing courses, any part of our textbook related to um, First Nations and indigenous communities, we did it. We knew we would never be tested on it and never had to read it because right. it wasn't quote unquote important to the course. Right. It wasn't a foundational part. It yeah. was just like, it was more like, no, this part of the criminal code. And this is in BC. They're usually yeah. better than that. I know. I think it's probably better now. I feel like I went to school at a weird time where it was just like transitioning from like uh, white supremacy to less white supremacy uh that but also from like it was like on the verge of like becoming more digital like in the two to three years after I graduated all of everything became very much like digital first oh okay um and like there was a big shift I found mm -hmm. um so that was cool so um I remembered something about the hair and and significance of cutting hair mm -hmm. and I just want to so um in terms of the treatment um many in the school's administrations believed that the student's independent spirit had to be broken um students who did not adhere to school schedules and regulations received whippings and were often humiliated in front of peers. Jesus. Students who tried to escape from, I should have added a trigger warning, I'm sorry. Trigger warning, this is bad shit, okay. Abuse, trigger warning abuse, that's it. Um, so students who tried to escape from the schools had their hair cut very short. Uh, often like RCMP would be called in to try and find these kids by the way. Um, indeed, such offenses would earn students long hours, even days, in a dark, secluded um, closet, often without food. The cutting of the hair on the first day at school or for punishment had a profound meaning. Long hair has a deep and spiritual meaning in Indigenous cultures. To many, it serves as an extension of a person's mind, reflective of its strength and beauty. The hair length and style also distinguish between different indigenous nations. And symbolically, the cutting of a person's hair by an enemy is an act of humiliation and forced submission, which was why when, um, and I'm just gonna use this as an aside, when uh, before Trudeau was prime minister, when he and Patrick, um, I forgot his last name, the, the Senator Brazo. Mm. Uh, fought and then I believe Trudeau cut his hair or something like that like that was an act of that was a multi-layered act of forced submission and humiliation so 
I mean, these things have very, very, like this is also from that facinghistory.org. And it says the staff at the Mohawk Institute even built a prison cell for those who tried to escape. Indeed, disobedience and escape were the two, two of the most common forms of resistance to the harsh foreign discipline. So, um, and we haven't even gotten to... Um, Oh, okay. Let me take a, let me take a breath here. Um, I, we haven't even, we're not going to get in deeply into the abuse, but sexual abuse was rampant. Physical abuse was rampant. Um, humiliation, not being fed or being fed, you know, bad food um, is another sort of way these we imprison these children much like, you know, and this is my problem. Like Canada loves to look across the border and talk about Trump and Trump's policies and stuff. But this definitely sounds like a precursor to those same child separation policies at the border. We've been seeing the one that Stephen Miller constructed that we saw with the, during the Trump presidency. And, you know, the difference is, you know, they're, these are people, this was their land. You know, they, their, their crime was existing, Mm -hmm. was being in the way of Canada's um, goals of dominion. So I just want, I just want to put that into perspective okay there's a whole abuse section here i'm not going to go into it i think we've done that Mm -hmm. Um, so i also want to connect this to the 1960s the government removed as many as 20,000 children from their parents indigenous children supposedly as a form of welfare patrick johnston in a 1983 report titled Native Children and the Child Welfare System, coined the term 60 scoop to describe this widespread practice. These scooped up kids were sent away to foster families who were often not better suited to care for them and many ended up in residential schools anyway. Others were moved to the United States. So when I think of the 60 scoop, there's a direct line from residential schools, 60 scoop to um, child welfare Mm. today, removing indigenous children from their homes. And that is the continuation of the genocide. So let's go to the police. So the police were really bad. Uh, (laughs) Um, cut. (laughs) There you go. So this is testimony from the Indian Residential School History and Dialogue Center. Um, So I'm going to break and say uh, there are a lot of terms Indian and Native in this podcast. Um, I'm sorry. Those are the quotes. (laughs) And And that's what we're taking it from. Otherwise, we're just call, we're just using the term indigenous. Mm-hmm. I just want to put that out there. Okay. So from that dialogue center, there was 
uh, it basically said, it is near the turn of the century. Indian agents, RCMP constables, and non-native farmhands encircle a Manitoba Indian reserve. One of the Indian agents and an RCMP constable approach the house of an Indian family, bang on the door, and loudly demand the parents give up their children to them. The agent instructs the RCMP constable to break down the door. They rush into the house, pry the frightened, screaming children from their parents' arms, and rush them into a holding area outside. The constable and agent go to the next house and the next, and in the ensuing few days, this scene is repeating many times on this reserve and on most reserves in southern Manitoba. All children captured during the fall roundup are marched to the nearest CPR station, Canada Pacific Railway, assigned a number and unceremoniously herded into cattle cars for transport to the residential school at Winnipeg. So imagine like literally ripping children from their parents' arms. Like, I don't know what kind of like evil person you have to be to think that that's okay. And the, the equally as evil are the people who say it was my job or I couldn't do anything. Yeah. Um, Sometimes they came with priests. So one day uh, the priest came to the village with the policeman. This is another account. Um, They came to take the kids to school. Another recalled Indian agents marched in lockstep with the religious orders, preparing a list of roundup. Strapping young farm boys aided by RCMP officers herded the children onto buckboard trucks or trains like cattle. So, yeah. So, I mean, the RCMP apparently have apologized while saying that they didn't know. (laughs) So, I'm going to just like not, you know, comment on they didn't know because no. In the late ni- in late in the late in late 1994, the RCMP established the E Division Task Force to investigate allegations of abuse in BC residential schools. There is evidence, however, that RCMP investigations into abuse were adversely influenced by the federal government's strategic interest in defending itself in the many civil lawsuits commenced by former students. For example. The government demanded that the RCMP hand over its investigative in investigation files related to the abuse at Cooper High School or Cooper Island School. The commission has the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has been able to identify fewer than 50 convictions stemming from allegations of abuse at residential schools. Um, This is surely insignificant compared to the nearly 38,000 claims of sexual and serious physical abuse that were submitted as part of the independent assessment process set up under the settlement agreement. So, um, yeah. Hmm. Man. It's so crazy to me that 
the residential school system only ended in 1996. Like I wasn't, it's not that I was just like, you know, one or two or three. I was like actual like person at that time with yeah. thoughts and I opinions. Was, yeah, I was a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. I honestly didn't. I here's the thing with me, like when it comes to like children suffering from abuse, that's like I, I you know, there's certain things I just can't. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to engage in. Sure. You know, like police murdering black people. Is one yeah. and this is another. So I didn't delve into it until this story came about because I was like, you know, I was like, we have to talk about this. Right. Mm -hmm. And I knew I would learn something. And now I've learned just how depraved this country is. Yeah, it is depraved. Like, and I don't care how how you how it's dressed up in nice language and 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 friendly smiles and whatever. The point is, is that this is a jet is a country that's genocidal. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. yeah. So I guess, you know, there were so all these residential school survivors um, filed lawsuits. And literally, that is how we got the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. It wasn't because the government decided to be kind. And so in 1990, Phil Fontaine, then leader of the Association of Manitoba Chiefs, called for the church, 1990, damn, called for the churches. The residential schools were still open. Yeah. Okay. Called for the churches to involve, to acknowledge the physical, emotional, and sexual abuse endured by students at the schools. A year later, the government convened a Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. Many people told the commission about their residential school experiences, and the commission's 1996 report recommended a separate public inquiry into residential schools. That recommendation was never followed. Why? I, you know why. <laughs> let's, let's sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. It's just so easy. I, I know, because now look. Anyway, compensation called common experience payments was made, to, made available to residential school students who were alive as of May 30th, 2005. Former residential school students are eligible for 10,000 for the first or part of the year they attended school, plus 3,000 for each subsequent year. Any money remaining from the $1.9 billion package, and um, that package, I believe, was in 2007. So two years after it was first announced, I guess that would be kind of like budget 2005, the federal government formalized a $1.9 billion compensation package for those who are forced to attend residential schools. That seems a little low to me in terms of payments, but hey. Um, 
as of September 30th, 2013, $1.6 billion has been paid, representing 105,548 cases. Hmm. Um, yeah. So the Aboriginal Healing Foundation was established in 1998 with a $350 million grant from INAC, former INAC, which was Indian and Northern Affairs Canada, to help former students who were physically and or sexually abused, but federal funded funding for that ended in 2010, i.e. the Harper years. Speaking of Harper, Harper delivered an official apology to residential school students in Parliament on June 11, 2008. Though the Catholic Church oversaw three quarters of Canadian residential schools, it was the last school to have one of its leaders officially address the abuse. On April 29, 2009, Pope Benedict XVI expressed his sorrow to a delegation from Canada's Assembly of First Nations for the abuse and deplorable treatment that Indigenous students suffered at Roman Catholic Church-run residential schools. At the time, the Assembly of First Nations leader Phil Fontaine said it wasn't an official apology, but added that he hoped the statement would close the book on the issue of apologies for residential school survivors. I say the book's still open. Yeah. In my humble opinion, if it wasn't an official statement, then it doesn't mean shit. Yeah, it's the the that choice by Phil Fontaine is interesting because I wonder what the subsequent AFN leaders would have said if you had asked them. And what about those who are not within the band system too? Exactly. Because the Canadian government under the Indian Act established this band system for reserves. Yeah, and not all First Nations are members of the AFN. Exactly. Or, or any of the other national Indigenous organizations. Exactly. Exactly. Because they're uh, not they're not a they're not a government, they're a lobbying organization. The AFN? Essentially, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, whew. oh my gosh. Oh, sorry. I just came across something that's okay. Sorry. Um, I'm just looking at some of these conditions and some of these punishments. And um, these children were struck with cat o nine tails, a whip with a cotton cord and nine knotted thongs commonly used for punishment by the British Navy and Army. Jesus. On children. Okay. Are you sick to your stomach yet? You know that this is a big story when the New York Times wrote about it. The Guardian. When like active, like black activists from the US that I follow are posting about it on not just Twitter, on Instagram, which means that they went out of their way to make a graphic for their Instagram 
because they felt that this was such a big deal. Oh, it's a big deal. Oh my. Like, like Ijeoma Oluo is one of the people I saw on Instagram posting about this. Wow. How do I not follow her on Instagram? That is a tragedy. It really is. I, 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 I should. Listen to this. <clears throat> the Mohawk Institute. So a woman named Lorna, who was at the Mohawk Institute from 1940 to 1945. Listen to this. They used to give us shock treatments for bedwetting. Okay, this this needs a trigger warning. Okay, this needs a kick. I'm going to, if you guys want to fast forward, I get it. But I'm going to say this because I really do think that the depravity needs to be said because be, just be just to fucking shock people yep. out of this we are great bubble this is why yep. I'm, this is why i'm saying this they used to bring in battery a motor of some sort or some kind bring in a battery a motor of some sort or some kind of gadget and he put the girl's hand on it and it would jerk us and it would go all the way through us from end to end it would travel Jesus Christ. Electricity. Okay. Um, local dentists were given free Novocaine by the government for the native kids, but the traditional practice after the war years was for them to hoard Novocaine for their practice in the port and just work on the Indians without painkillers. Everyone in the school knew about this and condoned it from the principal on down. No one minded when Indians were hurt. Naturally, they were being beaten every day. This is in the facinghistory.org because I, 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 I link is in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm like, okay, I'm done reading this now. But like, I, Aaron. It's very rare that I am, I'm just, I'm flummoxed. I'm, I'm just, I, 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 I kind of like that this came up again, though I obviously deplore the circumstances, right? Um, because it came up again in this time, mm-hmm. in this time when um when we are talking about colonialism we're talking about white supremacy we're talking about the racism that and and the systemic structures that have been created to ensure white supremacy and what white supremacy looks like how violent it is and you know and our i really do think that that's why there are a lot of people looking at different conflicts just differently. We really need, one of the things that we really need to interrogate is whiteness and what whiteness looks like structurally and how whiteness in itself is, um, is a form of power that has been built into how we know Canada uh-huh. as it is. Uh-huh. It's so much, white supremacy is so much of Canada's identity that, you know, you get 
our next topic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Did you like that segue? That's great. That's good. Good job. So for those of you who, you know, tuned out for the weekend or basically didn't have Erica sending you this link. <laughs> I did tweet about it, though. I, oh, I saw. <laughs> I, I saw the discourse. Uh, this past weekend, the Globe and Mail published a column by Joseph Heath, a philosophy professor at the University of Toronto. Sidebar, the jokes about philosophy majors on TikTok and like general social media is excellent. (laughs) Excellent. White men who are philosophy majors. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my God. Chef's kiss. Oh my God. I need, I need, I'm looking that out. These are 100% the like guys who are like, oh, let me play like, uh, let me play the acoustic guitar for you at this party. (laughs) Anyway, the column argued that the term BIPOC uh, or which is an acronym for black indigenous and, and people of color was inadequate for Canada when discussing issues of race. So, Kel Surprise, it may come as no surprise that Joseph Heath is a white man. Tell me you're white without telling me you're white. <laughs> is exactly this article. Oh, fuck. So the column starts off, quote, one of the biggest problems in Canadian politics is that large segments of our population seem to think they live in the United States. How else can one explain the fools running around in mega hats and holding demonstrations in support of former US President Donald Trump? Sometimes I feel like I should shake them by the shoulders and shout, you live in Canada. Unfortunately, I am beginning to feel the same way toward people who talk about BIPOC issues as though it were normal for Canadians to use that expression, end quote. So while social justice circles have been using this term for years, uh, and the New York Times found that the first instance of the use on Twitter was in 2013, though some say that the term was originally coined around 2010. So uh, pick your poison, I guess. Uh, The term BIPOC gained widespread use following the murder of George Floyd in 2020. And while Heath is technically correct that the term was primarily used to describe race relations in the US, however, the phrase people of color has been in use since 1796 when it was included in the Oxford Dictionary with the British spelling of color. What? Right? Fun really? Fact. Yeah. Fun fact. Seventeen ninety six. Yeah. Oh no no I can't use that anymore. I just. <laughs> <laughs> I don't now now I'm like fuck. <laughs> you know my aunt hates the term people of color. So my aunt I lives mean... in. She she lives in England, right? Oh, great. She's like what's this, what's this people of color? You mean like, I, I, I don't understand. How different is it from colored people? <laughs> you know what? Great point. 
Good point. Except that they call theirs BAME. Yeah. British, Asian. And minority ethnic. Oh, good Lord. That's even worse. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Um, But the inclusion of both Black and Indigenous was meant to capture the specific and unique experiences of racism uh, of those communities. So in his piece, wow. In his piece, Heath goes on to lament, quote, rather than developing our own acronym to reflect the reality of race relations and multiculturalism in Canada, far too many people have chosen just to use the American term. All three components of the acronym, B, I, and POC, are problematic in a Canadian context. Let's start with Black. Oh, good God. In the United States, there is good reason to put the B first, because Black people are by far the most important minority group in that country, making up more than 12% of the population. In Canada, Black people make up 3.5% of the population, but the Black population in Canada consists almost entirely of immigrants and their immediate descendants. Oh, for fuck's sake. In Canada, however, where Indigenous people make up almost 5% of the population, it makes no sense at all to put the B before the I or even to treat Black people as a separate category from other ethnic groups. This brings us to the POC part of the acronym. This is slightly less important, but the term traditionally used in Canada is visible minority, end quote. (laughs) I hate that. Listen, I hate that term visible minority. Yes. Okay. Like, why doesn't he say that he just wants us out on the cotton field and done the story? Like, because literally, that's how this is translating to me. Oh, my God. Okay. And can we just, <laughs> let, let me just, as an aside, what is it with U of T providing these shit white men? I don't know. No, no, Aaron, seriously. Like, this is the, this is like the the umpteenth white man making pronouncements on either like on gender or race or something like that who comes from u of t is probably tenured by the way mm-hmm. okay and is 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 putting this drivel out in the world oh he thinks he is absolutely extremely onto something with this Oh, I know he does. Like, never interrupt I, a white man with a shit thought. I like when I came across the word the the acronym BIPOC. I never viewed it as based on percentage or priority of the population, because by that definition, would people of color not have been first because they include a wider group of people? Exact. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. It's not fucking acronym math. No. No, acronym. It just, it literally sounds better. You can say it as a word. But not only that, the reason BIPOC even came about was because it used to be people of color, apparently Mm -hmm. from 1796. I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. Okay. So anyway, um, the, the idea was people of color is too broad and it, mm-hmm. it recognizes that black people and indigenous people have a specific, have specific challenges and a specific history. Mm-hmm. This is a man who does not know Canadian history. Because black people have been in this country since the 1600s. So first of all. Yeah. Second of all, you're right. What does math have to do with it? Why are we, why is the assumption? And by the way, this, I just want to point that this is a way they try to erase us. They try to tell us that we're really not part of the part of the culture you're only 3.5 percent we're invisible why should we bother with you anyway yeah that's literally how they see us the erasure is real mm-hmm. and the idea that somehow um you know he's like well indigenous people should be in there they are like they are indigenous people have a specific relationship with this country mm-hmm. black people <clears throat> a specific relationship with the country <clears throat> the other thing too is that BIPOC was there to really say listen black and indigenous people also experience racism differently they, their interaction yeah. with the state is different yes okay and it's and it's based on skin color predominantly like, I would argue that, like, Hispanic people should probably also be pulled out, but because, yes, like... they should. They should. But, like, I don't want to get into that, but, like, we do refer to Black and Brown people when we talk about racism. Yep, we and, do. like, seeing Black and Brown people on TV in positions of power and whatever. And Exactly. And it's interesting because, of course, the term Asian in the UK is your um like indian people yeah yeah exactly here it's not no you know and so um and so this is a man who fundamentally misrepresents um i don't know how much he understands i i i'm not affording him any grace whatsoever because Mm -hmm. he's an idiot Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Globe and Mail published this shit with zero evidence, with zero, with nobody of, of credibility, because, well, I don't know where they'd find this person anyway, nobody of credibility to, to say, link to, to quote mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. This is all coming out of his head with really very little critical thinking and what kills me is how did this make this how did this make it past the globe and mail editors well listen listen i know i know it was rhetorical to be fair if we want to talk about the specific canadian context well don't worry mr joseph heath covered that too because of course the argument doesn't end there He says, quote, it is worth noting that the largest group of people in this country who were victimized by British colonialism, subjugated and incorporated into confederation by force, 
are French Canadians. Oh, for fuck's sake. This is why the status of the French language has served as the major flashpoint for conflict over minority rights in this country. And so if there is the need for an acronym to identify the most important minority groups in Canada, I would propose FIVM. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. You know what? Francophone, Indigenous, and Visible Minority. Yeah. You notice he erased us all. He erased Black people (laughs) out of the conversation. Totally. But like this man clearly has no idea that the whole purpose of the acronym is so you can say it as a word. Who's going to walk around saying fucking FIVM? Oh. And why is it's he not a branding problem? <laughs> the other thing too is that the embedded in that argument is that French Canadians are white. Ah, one hundred percent. That pure len yep. idea of the French Canadian. Mm. What a fucking racist column. Being, Coming to think of it, being a, a, a like a a um uh, a language minority is not the same as being a fucking visible minority. You dumb fuck. Yeah. On top of that, um, can we talk about power and who has power right now? Because it seems like those French Canadians are pretty, have pretty much power in Quebec. They've got a whole fucking province. They've got a whole fucking province. What the fuck do we have? <laughs> like, come on. You got a whole pro. Like, seriously. Now, now, what is it? They want to rewrite the Constitution? Oh, my God. I- it seems to me like a powerful group. Um, anyway, so Heath ends his trash column, uh, seeming to imply that American-style racial discourse has no place in Canada because we're a cultural mosaic and, you know, we don't assimilate people. Listen, my guy. Yo. Mm-mm. Somebody should have read that Truth and Reconciliation report. Mm-mm, mm-mm. But, you know, Erica, of course, issues with the term BIPOC aren't new. Um nope. And for those for whom the term isn't new, the discussion has evolved to how BIPOC isn't doing what we think it's doing with many Black people actually disliking the term. And so in an interview with Chatelaine, Hike Ojo-Thompson, who is an anti-oppression consultant with the Kojo Institute, explains that Black people generally dislike the term because, quote, it suggests an interchangeability in being Black or a person of color and there is no interchangeability. What it does potentially inadvertently is that by lumping all of these groups together, it comes across as and suggests that we are having the same experience. So the acronym BIPOC fails to articulate the differential ways that racialized people experience race and racism, end quote. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that take because the whole point of the inclusion of the B and the I was to like pull out those to, yeah. to, to illustrate that they are different and not the same. I actually don't have a problem with BIPOC <laughs> as much as I have a problem. I use BIPOC instead of people of color. I absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So now if I have very few characters left, I'll use POC. <laughs> You know what I mean? And yeah, this is That's exactly it. this is That's exactly, the only reason I will use PSC. This is exactly the thing is that to me, like I know BIPOC isn't a perfect acronym. Yeah. But 
it's better it's, than what we had. It's better than what we had. And it's generally all encompassing, though it doesn't necessarily give you the exact meaning you're going for, but it depends on the context. It because does. If I mean that something disproportionately affects black or indigenous people, I'll fucking say that it disproportionately affects black and indigenous people. Right. But if I Just, mean that it affects like black indigenous black people, indigenous people, and other racialized communities, I'll use BIPOC. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I'm not a big fan of racialized because to me it sounds like a rash. This is what I don't like about um how this article is framed as though the black experience just ends at the 49th parallel. Mm -hmm. There is, there is a consistent black experience within Western countries. Absolutely. Right. It's not the same. So for example, um, outside of the U S the U S hasn't really like, British colonialism is not part of the U.S. history after the American Revolution, right? In Canada, it certainly is. And of course, in Britain itself, right? But I just, so I don't like, and this is what irks me when white people tell me not to quote unquote confuse the Canadian and American experience as though those white people can tell me what my experience is, how it should be, or how it should be conceptualized. Because let me tell you, when it comes to the way these systems were created, there's very little daylight between the two. Right. Right. They're very similar. And so like, I guess um, it's like, what's the difference between race and skin color? should be like is probably a really really nuanced discussion that i think you just kind of alerted me to Mm. you know what i mean Mm -hmm. what is the difference between race and skin color so race is a social construct as many people you know as ta-nehisi code said you can't have racism without race. That race is a child of racism, yeah. which I like, which is just like blowing my mind right now when I'm thinking about it because I'm like, yes. So basically, the construct of race is within it is like the framework of sort of um, race has to do with its contrast with um, whiteness, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, you're black. Because it has to be the- a foil. Yes, yes, that's whiteness, it. Whiteness needs a foil, and so therefore it's another race. That's perfectly put. It's perfectly put, right? And so when you think of black, yeah, I think, okay, I get what you're saying. Like, I think of the experience and I think I think of our collective experience from the African diaspora mm-hmm. and that history and how it's sort of, you know, predicated around the world in terms of that foil. Right. Mm-hmm. What I do think this is a really good example, though, of how language evolves. 
right? Okay. Like, yeah. Like it went from quote unquote colored people to people of color, um, then to BIPOC. And now we're like, just say black people. Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad you brought this up, Erin, because why is it that white people are so scared to say black? I don't know. And I will use my mother as a great example of this. Ooh. My mom's like, oh, she's like, I, I think I finally got her to say black people, but like, she's like, oh, like African-Americans. And I'm like, we live in Canada. And none, stop- of, none of I- these people are fucking African-Americans, first of all, because they're not American. Second of all, they may not be coming from fucking Africa. Well, the other thing too, is I don't like African-Canadian either. Well, yeah, I think, like- I think that's too American. Oh, Absolutely. You know, I'm like, they're like African Canadians. I'm like, just say black. Okay. Yes, <laughs> like, absolutely. Like, it's not a, and the thing is, and this is, and this is white guilt 101 because they know they've been such shit to black people that they don't want to actually identify us yeah. because then they would have to be like, but I'm white. Do you see what I'm saying? That foil again. Yes. Right? Yes. And, and it, they would and they have to recognize a, their own whiteness. They'd have to recognize that someone is, has a particular skin color that is not white. And that makes them uncomfortable because it happens in the workplace too, right? Like if you're like describing someone, you're like, Oh, you know, you know, Jimmy, I don't, Oh, you've met him before. He's like the tall skinny guy. Meanwhile, he's fucking Chinese. Like, I, I, I'd call like, him Jimmy, you know, he's Chinese, use his last name, Jimmy Wu. I don't know. Like, I just say the Asian dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally. Just say, you know, Jimmy sits down the, down the way. He's Asian. Yeah. Like, it's not racist to identify, be like, he is Asian. End of sentence. You know why? <laughs> yeah, because white people don't want to face their own whiteness and what that means. Yes. So they'll never say, so I will say, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy, who's Jimmy? You know, tall Jimmy, da, da, da. Who's Jimmy? The Asian guy. Oh, yeah. Or Sandra, the woman in the wheelchair. Thank you. Right? And, And the thing about it is, is that I, again, now we are expected to adjust to their, like, issues, with their own race, which is why white people will talk, will, will, they'll be like, you're being racist because you, you identified white. It's like, no, that's not racism. That's your hang up. Okay. Yeah. It's not mine. Don't project. What is, it's, it's a fact. It's literally a fact. You are white. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, white also has its own social uh, contract. Absolutely. <laughs> We've been defining it for them, I see, with the Beckys and the and the Karens and the this. That's white people. Absolutely. But then there's also the history of like the Irish and the Italians and they white too. Now. Yeah. All that to say is uh I finally got my mom to say black people. Uh how did she feel? Did she hyperventilate? Well, no, it's because she was telling me, she's like, oh, like I saw uh, your friend on the street as I was like driving by him. And I was like, oh, who's that black guy? And I was like, oh, I know him. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank God. Yeah. It's okay to say black. It's okay. It's fine. It's not a slur. No. You know, in fact, just call me black. Now, if you say the blacks, then you're a racist. That's (laughs) very important nuance. The blacks. Very important nuance. Yes. Never say that. Yeah. Yeah. The blacks. And listen, if you don't know, it's okay to ask. Yeah. You can even, well, I I was going to say. Don't slide into her DMs. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, no, no. no. (laughs) Don't slide into my DMs. However, I'm pretty sure you could tweet the podcast. Tweet the podcast. We'll let you know. Yeah. Don't slide into mine. I mean, you can, and I probably won't answer you. She won't answer. Um, as always, follow us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram and Twitter. Share and like us. And uh, tell your friends. And uh, give us fucking like reviews. Because, listen, we got to eat. Yeah. Download, share, subscribe. We got to eat. Or listen, share, subscribe, something like that. Yeah. I feel like I feel like this should be a hashtag or something, just to remind people. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Great. All right. We'll we'll uh we'll be back uh with massages of the week. Yes, we will. Great. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.